Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled Leaving Home. It's based upon the lectionary readings for February 3rd, 2019. You Can't Go Home Again. It's the title of a 20th century American novel by Thomas Wolfe. It's also an apt title for this week's gospel story, a story in which Jesus returns to Nazareth, preaches in his childhood synagogue, infuriates his old friends and relations, and almost dies when they try to shove him over a cliff. Apparently it's true. You can't go home again. Sometimes the hometown boy won't make good. The story Luke tells is a strange one, full of emotional twists and turns. Within the space of ten verses, everything goes south. Curiosity turns into contempt. Delight gives way to hatred. Worship morphs into violence. Why? I've spent the past week replaying the details in my head, trying to figure out exactly what went wrong. After all, when we left Jesus last week, things were looking pretty good. He was center stage amidst an admiring congregation, reading a beautiful passage from the prophet Isaiah about good news for the poor, freedom for the prisoner, sight for the blind, and justice for the oppressed. Every eye in the synagogue was fixed on him, impressed by his gracious words and authoritative bearing. Wasn't this Joseph's boy? the carpenter's kid with the iffy birth story? Who would have thought he'd grow up to become a healer, a preacher, a miracle worker, their very own rising star? It's not difficult to imagine our way into the townspeople's point of view. Who knows how long they'd been waiting to welcome Jesus home, to see for themselves the wonders they'd heard about via the grapevine, that the heavens opened up in Jesus' presence, that water turned into wine, that diseases disappeared and demons scattered to oblivion. Surely they must have thought, if their boy was willing to peddle miracles to perfect strangers out there, he'd do a hundredfold back here at home, among his kin, his insiders, his favorites. But they were dead wrong. As far as I can tell, the story turns precisely when Jesus refuses to go home in the ways that matter most to his kin. He refuses to be at home, to stay at home, to allow his home to define him. Everything goes wrong when Jesus essentially says, I am not yours, I don't belong to you, I am not yours to claim or contain. He does this by citing God's long history of prioritizing the outsider, the foreigner, the stranger. Elijah was sent to care for the widow at Zarephath, he reminds them. He wasn't sent to the widows of Israel. Elisha was instructed to heal Naaman the Syrian, not the numerous lepers in Israel. In other words, God has always been in the remote business God has always been in the business of working on the margins, of crossing borders, of doing new and exciting things in remote and unlikely places, far from home, far from the familiar and the comfortable, far from the centers of power and piety. As I meditated on the gospel this week, I had to remind myself to linger uncomfortably at this point of provocation. If Luke's account is accurate, then Jesus is the one who pushes his own away in this story. He is the one who rejects their version of welcome, who refuses to abide by the tribalist claims of their hospitality. He is the one who overturns their notions of home and of God's place in it. You can't go home, he basically tells them. You can't hunker down and stay where you are, expecting God to hang out with you. God is on the move. God is doing a new thing. God is speaking in places you don't recognize as sacred, privileging voices you're not interested in hearing, and saying things that will make your ears burn. Can you handle it? God is not yours, you are his. What does this mean for us? 
Maybe it means if the Jesus we worship never offends us, then it's not really Jesus we worship. Yes, ouch. Remember, the Jesus Luke describes pushed so hard against his listeners' cherished assumptions about faith, they nearly killed him. When was the last time Jesus made you that angry? When was the last time he touched whatever it is you call holy? Your conservatism, your progressivism, your theology, your denomination, your biblical literacy, your prayer life, your politics, your wokeness, and asked you to look beyond it, to find him. I ask because a disconcerting truth about this week's lecture is that we, we the church, are the modern-day equivalent of Jesus' ancient townspeople. We're the ones who think we know Jesus best. We're the ones most in danger of domesticating him. We're the ones most likely to miss him when he shows up in faces we don't recognize or revere. What will it take to follow him into new and uncomfortable territory, to see him where we least desire to look, to leave home? Barbara Brown Taylor writes that disillusionment, even though it stings, is essential to the Christian life. Disillusionment is literally the loss of an illusion about ourselves, about the world, about God. And while it is almost always a painful thing, it is never a bad thing to lose the lies we have mistaken for the truth. Luke's story this week calls us to disillusionment. It calls us to leave home and find Jesus, to choose movement over stasis, change over security. So I wonder... How do I refuse to let others in my life grow and change? When do I box them into identities that are narrow and constricting? Where in my life do I try to kill the new and the unfamiliar, instead of leaning into newness with curiosity and delight? Do I allow the people I am close to to become? Do I allow myself to become? Or do I cut myself and others off with expectations none of us can bear? You will always be small, weak, broken, insufficient, disappointing. You will never outgrow your background, race, family, upbringing, wounds, addictions. You must always be recognizable, accommodating, domesticated, mine. You can't go home again. You can't stay. Why? Because God is on the move. God is busy at the margins. God is doing new things. And God invites us to join him on the journey. Are you ready? Are you afraid? Are you willing to try anyway? Okay, that's good enough. Let's go. For books this week, Brad Keister reviews Leonardo da Vinci by Walter Isaacson. In his most recent biography, Walter Isaacson moves further back in time from his chronicles of Einstein and Steve Jobs to Leonardo da Vinci, who was epitomized the Renaissance more than any other individual. Leonardo was born the illegitimate son of an aristocrat who never opted to give him official family status. Some argue that this came from a low view of his son, but others note that his many efforts in support of Leonardo's activities suggest that Leonardo would otherwise have been forced as a full family member into becoming a notary, given the rigid guild structure of the time. With a lack of privilege that would have guaranteed him a formal education, Leonardo was primarily self-taught, yet his talents enabled him to make profound contributions to many disciplines, often not disseminated in their day. One of Isaacson's central themes is that genius alone does not characterize such a singular individual, Instead, he points to Leonardo's insatiable curiosity and the lengths he would go to learn what he wanted. Isaacson focuses on Leonardo's notebooks, of which the 7,200 pages now extant may represent only one quarter of what he wrote. These pages are filled with analysis, designs, and questions, notes to self. Without the benefit of training in mathematics, Leonardo designed countless machines, many with military objectives, and was fascinated by the flow of water and of blood in the body. His interest in the human body is well known, and Leonardo dissected countless cadavers to get the bone and muscle structure right. 
Indeed, his view of painting human subjects was that one started on the inside of the body and worked outward, rather than simply recording an image of skin and clothing. Leonardo also had a special interest in light, how it reflects and diffuses in different situations. He was also interested in the interplay of light and movement. Unlike many artists of his day and now, Leonardo often embraced collaboration if it would lead to a better outcome than from him alone. Yet much of his life, as reflected in his notebooks, was a solitary quest to understand everything. Many of his paintings, including the most famous Mona Lisa, remained unfinished, much to the dismay of many patrons who had paid commissions for his work. He had many new ideas in science and technology that remained in his notebooks, only to be rediscovered and promoted by someone else years, if not centuries, later. For movies this week, Dan reviews Crazy Rich Asians. This romantic comedy was a breakaway blockbuster last summer. It's based upon the 2013 novel of the same title by Kevin Kwan, who has a cameo appearance in the movie. The story began with a hilarious backstory in 1995, when the mega-rich Eleanor Young stumbles out of the rain into a snooty London hotel and is turned away with a racial slur by a receptionist who says he can't find a reservation. She doesn't get mad, she gets even. She buys the hotel. Eleanor is the overbearing mother of Nick Young, whom we meet 23 years later when he has fallen in love with a young NYU economics professor named Rachel Chu. Rachel goes to Singapore with Nick in order for him to attend the best wedding of the best wedding of his friend and, of course, to meet his extended family. The first clue that Nick's Asian family is crazy rich is at the airport curbside when an attendant takes their luggage and escorts them to their private airplane suite. But Rachel is a commoner, which is a setup for two hours of funny cultural clashes based upon Asian stereotypes about social state, status, controlling parents, foods, accents, luxury labels, elite universities, prestigious degrees, mahjong, and socially acceptable jobs. Is Rachel good enough for Nick's family? Are there vastly different backgrounds a deal killer? Maybe Nick's family isn't so pure and good? Is all the glitters really gold? This is only an anecdotal, but my adult ch children tell me that all their Asian friends love the summertime fun. And finally, for poetry this week, Christian Wyman's The Preacher Addresses the Seminarians. I tell you, it's a bitch existence some Sundays, and it's no good pretending you don't have to pretend. Don't have to glitch up those glue-futured nags, hope, and help and whip the sorry, sorry chariot of yourself toward whatever hell your heaven is on days like these. I tell you, it takes some hunger heaven itself won't slake. To be so twitchingly intent on the pretty organist peddling, so lizardly alert to the curvelessness of a choir robe. Here it comes, brothers and sisters, the confession of sins, hominy, hominy, dipstick dology, doxology, one more church-curdled hymn. We don't so much sing as haunt, grounded altos, gear-grinding tenors, three-score and ten gently bewildered men lip-syncing along. You're up, pastor. Bring on the unthunder, some trickle-piss tangent to reality, some bit of the gospel ruling out of you. I tell you sometimes mercy means nothing but release from this homiletic hologram, a little flesh-step sideways as it were, setting passion on autopilot, as if it weren't to gaze out in peace at your peaceless parishioners. Booze glazes and facelifts, bad mortgages, bored marriages, making a kind of masonry in faces at once specific and generic. And here and there that rapt, famished face that looks, that leaps from person to person, year to year, like a holy flu. All these little crevices into which you've crawled like a chubby plumber with useless tools. Here, have a verse for your wife's death. Here, have a death for your life's curse. 
I tell you, some Sundays even the children's sermon, maybe especially this, sharks your gut like a bite of tin some beer-guzzling goat either drunkenly or mistakenly decides to sample. I know what you're thinking. Christ's in this. He'll get to it, the old cunner, somewhere, somehow. There's the miracle meat, the aurora borealis blood, every last atom compacted to a grave, and the one thing that every man must lose to save. Well, friends, I'm here to tell you two things today. First, though this is not for me one of those bilious, abrading days, though in fact I stand before you in a rage of faith and have all good hope that you all, that you all will go help untold souls back into their bodies, ease the annihilating no above which they float. The truth is, our only savior is failure. Which brings me to the second thing, that goat. It was real. It is, as is usually the case, a displacement of agency that is the lie. It was long ago, Mexico, my demon days. It was a wager whose stakes I failed to appreciate. He tottered. He flowered. He writhed time to a fraught quiet and kicked occasionally and lay there twitching, watching me die. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for February 3rd, 2019. I'm Debbie Thomas.